Well, good morning. If you've uh, not met me before, my name's Ross. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm the, the youth and children's worker here normally. And um, it's a bit radical for me not to begin a talk in Sunday morning church by saying, good morning, boys and girls, mums and dads, and all my other friends. Um, so I'll try not to. Um, this morning, we, we are beginning a new sermon series in Habakkuk. Just, I wonder, by show of hands, has anyone read Habakkuk before? Have you, have you cracked into Habakkuk before a couple? One, two, three, yeah, a few. Brilliant. I hadn't done Habakkuk before this year, um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to be opening it up um, with all of you, um, because as I've gotten further into Habakkuk, um, I find that it's been a bit like rummaging around for jewels in a sack full of gold. It is a great book. It's a, I, I was ch- chatting to George earlier, and he was saying, oh, you've got four sermons on three chapters, you know. Well, well done, that's, that's brave. But there's so much in here that we could uh, think about that I could do more, you know. I'll try my best not to. Um, as we look through um, this part of God's Word together, we're not just going to see some interesting things um, about Israel's history or even just some, some principles about God. The first time I looked at Habakkuk was with some of the Pathfinder boys at our midweek Bible study called Illuminate. And uh, as we looked at this chapter together, one of the boys in particular said to me at one stage, towards the end of our study, he sort of went, this is about Jesus, isn't it, Ross? I said, yes, it is. That's amazing. That's so good. We're going to see the jewels of the gospel from this Old Testament prophet. You'll be helped by having one of those little pink sheets, um, which you'll, you'll find in your service sheets or perhaps on the floor now if you've uh, dropped it like Tom. Um, and you might be helped by taking notes. That'll give us an idea of where we're going. Um, before we get stuck into the passage, let me pray. Let me ask for God's help to do this. Father God in heaven, I feel uh, the burden of your word upon me this morning, uh, and I know that this is a task I can't complete without your help. Please, would you give us your spirit that I might uh, speak your words, and that my brothers and sisters here might hear and understand and be utterly amazed at what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. What we have in Habakkuk is an honest prophet, and his book is realistic about the world that we live in. He's honest because he doesn't pretend that he understands everything that's going on all the time. He's not afraid to to come to God and say, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know how this is happening. I don't know why you're tolerating this. That's why... In verse 2, you'll see he cries out to God, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. He doesn't understand. He knows things about God. He uses God's covenant name. You see in verse 2, he calls him the Lord. That's a name that invokes um, uh, knowledge of God's compassion and his love and his promises that he's made to his people. So Habakkuk can't square what he knows about God with what he sees in front of him. And he's not afraid to say so. He is an honest prophet. His book is realistic about the world that we live in because the the problems that we face 
are the same problems as those which Habakkuk um, faced. Cast your eye through um, verse 2 to 4. You'll see um, in verse 2 there, Habakkuk cries out, violence. There's violence in his world. Look in verse 3, there's injustice. There's wrongdoing. There's violence and destruction. There's strife. There's conflict. The law is paralyzed. There's wickedness. And so Habakkuk cries out to God, How long, O Lord? Well, that question perfectly expresses how we feel sometimes, doesn't it? How we feel when we're confronted with the effects of sin in our world. I'm sure all of us can think of times when in the depths of our souls we have cried out, How long, O Lord? Like when we see the persecution of Christians around the world. It's estimated that every day, every hour, roughly 11 Christians will die. So over the course of this church service, 11 of our brothers and sisters around the world will be with Jesus. We cry out, how long? When we see wars and and violence on the news, more conflict happening, we cry out, how long? Well, when another world leader resigns because a scandal has been uncovered, we cry out, how long, O Lord? When we see that another child has been kidnapped and abused and that there's been a cover-up, we cry out, how long? When we're in the midst of a long-term illness, we cry out, how long? When we're longing for a fulfilling relationship and one doesn't come, We cry out, how long? When we're stuck in a job that we hate, working too many hours in the day and not seeing our friends or our family, we cry out, how long? When our family is breaking down in front of us, we cry out, how long? When we're confronted with the reality of death, we cry out, how long? How long, O Lord? We can cry out with Habakkuk, can't we? But there is good news for us in this passage. And as I prayed earlier, I've been praying this week that you would be utterly amazed by what God has done as we see the gospel in in Habakkuk. Before we get there, though, we need to have a look at injustice the injustice that Habakkuk is complaining about. And to do this, you need to know some of the history of uh, God's people. It's a bit like um, one of those stock charts. You know, I know there are lots of people here that will know more about stocks than me. I don't own any um, stocks or shares or anything like that. Um, but it's one of those, like one of those charts you see, you know, when a company starts and it's doing really well, it soars up to the top and then it peaks and then there's a, a market crash and the stock's start going down. Maybe they recover a little bit, but then they they keep going, dipping right down um, until they hit the bottom and the company goes bankrupt. It's a bit like that, right? So God um, will begin with Abraham, right? God makes some promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a people and I'm going to give you a place to live and I'm going to bless you and all the people in the world are going to be blessed because of the blessing that I've given you. And then God's people end up in Egypt, and he rescues them out of that, as we all know, uh, and he takes them towards the promised land, the land he promised to Abraham, right? The stock is rising. 
and uh, then they get into the land, they conquer the land, and they get kings, and we've got King David and King Solomon, and they build the temple, and they build this great city, Jerusalem, and the stock's soaring. Everyone wants to buy in. People are coming from all nations to be part of this amazing place. The stock is right up at the top. And then there's, then the king sins, and God says, actually, the kingdom's going to be broken now, and the stock begins to decline. The kingdom is divided in two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Habakkuk is the prophet to Judah. And you've got this gradual downward spiral towards exile from the land. Sometimes the, 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 the stock rises again. You've got a good king who comes along and he does some good stuff. He breaks down some of the idols. But then the next king's evil, and the, the stock keeps going down. The stock keeps dipping um, towards the bottom. And finally, it hits a new low when Manasseh is on the throne. He was the most evil king recorded in the Bible. According to two kings, he is the most evil one. I'll give you a flavor of how bad he was. So some of us, a lot of us, have children here, or know some children, or have seen some children this morning. Manasseh sacrificed his own son in the fires to the god, the evil, the idol Baal, right? Or the god Molech, sorry. He sacrificed his own son. He led the whole people of Judah to worship idols. He built altars to foreign gods in the temple which was reserved for God's name. He makes the people become worse than the previous inhabitants to the land. And God says, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to remove you from the land because of all the evil that you've done. The stock is right down at the bottom. No one wants a part of this company now. And Habakkuk, the prophet, is enduring this time. He is alive while this is going on. He is prophesying in the temple where the altars have been built. And then Manasseh dies, and his successor dies, and the stock picks up again. Miraculously, King Josiah takes the throne. Josiah, the name means God cleanses. Okay? He was a great king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removes the idols. He breaks down the altars to false gods. He cuts down the Asherah poles. He removes all the high places. He finds the book of the law. He repairs the temple. He renews the covenant with God. And the people all agree to follow it. Everyone's thinking, brilliant. Habakkuk's thinking, this is amazing. Everything's going to be good again. God is restoring us. The time of judgment's finished. We're going to be prosperous again. He is absolutely loving it. But then Josiah dies. And the stock dive bombs. Never recovers. His successor does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the king after that. And the king after that. And the king after that. And eventually they're taken away into exile. And Habakkuk watches all of this. He sees all of this happening and he cries out, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, Violence, but you do not save? He's endured a period of of 60 plus years after Josiah of this evil, this maligning of God's law. 
He feels like God is not answering him. Why do you make me look at this injustice or tolerate this wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. Even though there are some righteous left in the land, they're surrounded by the wicked. They're hemmed in by the wicked. Justice is always perverted. God's land, the promised land, has become an awful place to be. Do you see in verse 3? It's a place of injustice. The poor are now exploited instead of taken care of. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. The land is swallowed in war again. Foreign nations attack the land. There is fighting within the land. There are battles and rebellion. Do you see in verse 3? Conflict abounds in the land. It's a world of destruction. The walls are broken down. The cities are destroyed in verse 3. It is a place of violence in verse 4. In verse 2. Do you see? I cry to you violence, but you don't save. People must lock their doors at night for fear of what's going to happen to them. The blood of the innocent once again stains the ground of the promised land. And Habakkuk cries out, How long, O Lord? How long will you not answer me? Well, isn't this our world too, brothers and sisters and friends? Aren't those problems our problems? Aren't those sins our sins? That's the big shock here. Did you notice that? The sin that Habakkuk describes isn't the sin of some foreign nation. It's the sin of God's own people. Do you see that? They've got the law. This is God's people living in the land. And all of these things are happening. This sin, it's our sin. It's the sin of God's people. Well, friends, has the law been paralyzed to you? Have you ignored God's law and, and sinned? Have we loved what is, what is wrong and ignored what is right? Have we worshipped the idols of sex and money and power and family and success? Have we done violence on someone, even in our hearts? Have we been in conflict with someone? The sin here that Habakkuk cries out about, this sin, this is our sin We should look at these verses and see ourselves. Well, how will we respond, or how will God respond to Habakkuk? And how will God uh, respond to us? See, Habakkuk is probably thinking at this stage, well, now I've, I've laid my complaint to God. And let's see what happens. Surely he's heard me this time. It's like on a, a Friday uh, when I'm in one of the kids' clubs and we're playing football. And uh, you know, one of the, the kids, usually Sean Burns, will throw himself on the ground and cry, Ref! Ref! What have they done? Habakkuk is crying out to God like that and he wants a response. There's anticipation um, from Habakkuk. He, he wants there to be another Josiah. He's expecting another cleansing king to come along and cleanse the land and take all the evil out of it and bring it back to what it was uh, before. But did you notice that's not what God says he's going to do? Do you notice in in verse 5 
what he says. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. Does he say, I'm going to bring someone in to cleanse the land? No. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. He's going to do something which Habakkuk won't believe over a pint down in the the Judean arms after a long day of prophesying. No, he's going to bring who? The Babylonians. In verse 6, the enemies of God's people, that ruthless and impetuous people. Now, Babylon, you must know, is is a growing empire at this time. This is around sort of 620 to 600 BC. And uh, the Babylonians are gradually increasing in power under their king, Nebuchadnezzar. Their stock is soaring, and they're conquering the Assyrian Empire bit by bit. They're sort of breaking it up and, uh, and incorporating it into their own um, empire. And uh, then, a familiar character to all of us, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you've read the book of Daniel, he takes over the throne. It's the same one. It's amazing how the Bible all fits together like that, isn't it? It's great. Um, he takes over the throne. And he sets his sights on Judah. He says, that, that's what I want. That place is strategically positioned in the balance of world power at that time in that area. Right? He says, I'm going to take um, Judah. And God says to Habakkuk, the reason that that is happening is because he's going to send them to destroy his own people. Habakkuk was not expecting that. What an utterly amazing thing for God to do. No, I think we need a brief aside here, um, because some might be thinking, as I was um, earlier this week, isn't that God giving assent to sin? Isn't God saying it's okay for them to be ruthless and impetuous and to sweep across the land and be feared and dreaded and be a lord of themselves? No, that's not what God is saying. Notice how, how God describes the Babylonians. They're not described as, as righteous or what they're doing is right. Look at how he describes them. Verse 6, they're ruthless, they're impetuous. Uh, they seize dwelling places, not their own. In verse 7, um, they're a law unto themselves. They don't listen to any kind of higher authority. They just do what, what's right in their own eyes. They promote their own honor. They're full of themselves. In verse 9, they come bent on violence. They sweep people away uh, like the sand. In verse 10, they deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They destroy cities. In verse 11, they are guilty men whose own strength is their God. They don't answer to God, the creator of the universe. They worship themselves. So God is not affirming what the Babylonians are doing. If anything, he makes it sound like they're more unrighteous, more guilty than his own people, doesn't he? Because at least in Judah, there are some righteous to be hemmed in by the wicked. And Babylon just sounds completely unrighteous. That's a little teaser for next week. You'll hear more about that uh, next Sunday. Now, here's what we learn um, about God's judgment from this passage. Okay? We're looking at God's judgment right now. First, we see that God's judgment is decisive. It is decisive. Look at verse 6. They sweep in. They sweep across the whole earth. Nothing can resist them. They seize dwelling places not their own. They cannot be resisted. God's judgment is, is unstoppable and it is terrifying. You see the images 
Um, they're feared and dreaded in verse 7. The images in verse 8. They're swifter than leopards. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They are fiercer than wolves at dusk. These people are a nightmare. And God's judgment is terrifying. Verse 9. God's judgment is devastating. Their, the violence will be done upon them. Their cities won't be protected in verse 10. They'll be destroyed. This is going to happen. The people in the land they cannot stop it. God's judgment is decisive. Second, God's judgment is deserved by his people. It's deserved by his people. We might see what God is doing and think, he can't do that. This unjust people, this unrighteous people coming in to destroy Judah, God's chosen people, the righteous people. We might think, that God, surely you cannot do that. But God's judgment is deserved by his people. Did you notice that from, from the text? Look at verse 2. Habakkuk cries out for the violence that God's people have been doing. God's people are violent. Well, how are they repaid? With violence in verse 9. They come bent on violence. God's people ignore the law in verse 4. Well, no law will save them from the Babylonians who have none. Look at verse 7. They're a law unto themselves. God's people deserve God's judgment. And third, we learn that God's judgment is deserved by us. You see, like God's people in Judah, we are the ones who should be swept up like sand in an advancing wind. We are the ones who should be caught by the swooping vulture in her talons. We are the ones who should be run down by the leopards and the fierce wolves and be devoured. We are the reason why God People cry out, how long, O Lord? We sinners deserve this judgment. And God has promised an eternity in hell and torment for those who break his law. And he is completely justified in doing so because that is deserved by his people and by us. That's the warning of this passage, friends. God is promising judgment to come on his people, and it does. The Babylonians would come. They would destroy Judah. They would take the people away into captivity. God's righteous, deserved judgment came on his people, and God promises that his judgment remains on those who remain his enemies. We read in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Well, friends, have you heard the warning of Habakkuk this morning? Look at the judgment that is coming from God. It is fierce, it is swift, it is devastating. It is eternal. It is forever. It cannot be resisted, friends. Hear the warning. Look at God's judgment and hear the warning from Habakkuk. Well, are you utterly amazed? Probably not. <laughs> you're, you're probably thinking, Ross, at the start you spoke of these sparkling jewels of the gospel. Where are those? 
Maybe you're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, will this sermon go on? So far, all we've heard that we, is that we share in the sin of these people and that we're facing God's righteous anger. How long will Ross keep going? <laughs> well, friends, brothers and sisters, here's the good news that we've been waiting for. Here's the gospel in Habakkuk. Because what we have here in Habakkuk is a foreshadowing of God's judgment as it's been poured out on Jesus as he died on the cross. At his trial, justice was perverted as the law was ignored. As he was nailed to the cross, as the nails pierced his hands, as God's king was mocked and derided. As he died on the cross, the righteous one was hemmed in by the wicked. The violence of the nations was done upon him. Well, look and be utterly amazed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Though he didn't deserve God's judgment, he faced it head on. Though he was innocent, he was pronounced guilty. Though he was righteous, he was crucified by the unrighteous. Though he was promised to save, God's people would not believe it, even though they were told For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, salvation for those who believe. For on the cross, on Jesus, the judgment that we deserved, it was poured out on him. We should be the ones swallowed by God's anger. Instead, it was Christ who was swallowed by blackness and death. He was put to death for all of our sin, which causes others to cry out, How long, O Lord? Our sin, which caused Christ to cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So friends, brothers and sisters, cry out to Jesus. Cry out in the name of Jesus for him to save you from the judgment to come. Cry out, for Jesus is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption from sin. Cry out to Jesus. For he is the salvation that no one expected. No one thought that this was the way that God was going to save his people. Some of you will have seen my son Ben running around here earlier. The little fellow with the ginger hair. He's great. I love him. And I love, oh, I love all of you very, very much. But if you ask me to come up with a plan to save you, my plan would not be to send my son Ben to die. I love, I, I love all of you dearly, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him. No one would expect me to either. But this, this was God's salvation plan. No one expected it. I hope you're utterly amazed by it. That he would send his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross. What an utterly amazing salvation. Even though we deserved judgment and we deserved death, God provided a way for us to be saved. Friends, cry out to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we cry out to you. For we have done wrong. We have been unjust. We have done violence. We have ignored your law. 
And yet we are utterly amazed at what you have done. We are utterly amazed that you would send your own son Jesus to die on the cross for us. That your judgment was poured on him instead of on us. Father God, we would cry out to you to save us in his name. Amen.